uh, guest ministry with us, and it is my pleasure and honor to have Joe and Renee Dallas with us. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to give you the long, the long biography. He's got credentials and and those things. But what I do want to tell you that's important for us to understand is that Joe is a faithful husband, a father to two grown adult sons, and he's been a faithful minister of the gospel, ordained with the Assemblies of God for about 30 years. Yeah. And so that's, that's what we need to know. He is a, a trusted friend. And so this morning with, with open hearts, I'm going to ask you to open, open your hearts and welcome Joe as he comes to minister to us this morning. Hey, thank you. Good morning. I and my wife really appreciate the chance to be with you and to worship with you and to uh, talk with you in a way that I hope continues the communication and conversation you've been having all of this month. Seems to me that one of the greatest twofold challenges we have as members of the body of Christ, the first is very personal the challenge to be good stewards of the bodies God has entrusted us with. And the older I get, the more I realize this body that I was assigned was a trust, whereby God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I shaped you, I designated you, I've ordained you to live at this time. And within that vessel I've given you, you're going to have all sorts of capacities, including emotional and sexual capacities, and I will expect you, as a steward, to use those capacities within my will. That's a very personal challenge I believe members of the body of Christ have. And then as the body of Christ, we also have the broader challenge of stewarding truth. We were entrusted with truth. Truth is always meant to be lived and then communicated, both. And thereby, I think, lies the challenge we're facing even as we speak. Um, this is a very personal issue to me. For about six years, I was a very committed gay activist from 1978 to 1984. I also was a staff member serving on the staff of a gay-affirming church and very committed to promoting the idea that God created homosexuality as surely as he created heterosexuality, that he blessed homosexual unions, and that I was living within his will as I was encouraging people to consider a revisionist view of the Bible. I was brought to repentance in early 1984. Within a year, I had met the woman who has been my uh, wife and ministry partner since 1987, and I've had the honor of walking alongside people who made a decision similar to me by the grace of God when they realized, oh, this is not what he intended. And I have loved that work, but, and this is the big pause, I remember so well how it was the life of the local congregation and the voice of the church that had so much to do with God's redemptive work in my life. I didn't just get some zap from God individually and in isolation. The deep work that had to be done to bring me both to repentance and to healing was done in the context of the local congregation 
and it was promoted to me through the voice of the church. And here is my concern right now. That voice is being muddled. It has become, over the last decade in particular, fainter and more ambiguous when it comes to very specific critical doctrines. The doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but by me. The doctrine of the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for instruction and rebuke and instruction in righteousness, of course. The existence, hate to talk about it, but there it is, of hell, of a place of judgment. The inherent sinful nature of humanity and the definition of marriage and family. These are critical pillars of the faith that the church is being seduced more and more into being ambiguous about. As a result, we have the kind of uncertainty that Paul spoke about when he was talking to the Corinthians, and he said, if the trumpet gives an uncertain call, who's going to prepare himself for battle? Which is true. If the trumpet doesn't seem to know what it's saying, then you as a soldier aren't going to know, are you being called to battle or are you being called to dinner? It's not going to be plain. Thereby, clarity is called for more than ever today, and that brings me to this vital concern. What I believe is the great challenge is clarity and balance. A couple of years back, Barna did a survey of pastors and found that over 50% of current pastors were reluctant, even afraid, to speak out on social issues. And of all of the social issues, they were the most fearful to speak on LGBTQ was at the top. Now, was that because they're all a bunch of wimps? No, I don't think it's that at all. I really don't. I think there is an understandable concern. Well, let me backtrack a little. One of my favorite Shakespearean lines comes from Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo is still pining away over Rosamond, the girl he loved before Juliet, and his friend Mercutio was making fun of him, and Romeo says, he jest at scars that never felt a wound. He thinks my pain is funny because he doesn't know anything about it. Now, I do think for decades, many Christians spoke about lesbian and gay people in such a way. They didn't really know what so many folks go through when they understand they're attracted to the same sex. And as a result, oftentimes the Christian message on homosexuality was laced with simplicity and contempt that was unbecoming of someone who preaches the gospel. And for that reason, I think today, Plenty of preachers look at that approach and say, I don't want any association with that. And as a, as a result, they're reluctant to be clear because, of course, the more we do know people, the more we feel an affinity with them, the more we want to be good to them, the less we want to say anything that would harm or offend them. And as a result, emotion too often is taking over the mind and the message is getting muddled. Which kind of raises the question, well, then what are we here for as the church? To make people feel good? I want to make people feel good. Good grief, I'd rather get along than not. But one of the last things Jesus said to Peter was, if you love me, feed my sheep. Don't just coddle them. Feed them. Give them what they need. Now, what do people need? Well, what do I need if I go to a doctor? There are three things in particular I'll look for. Now, the first is respect and goodwill. If I go to a doctor and he says, hello, baldy, you sure look your 69 years today, don't you? 
Well, I'm out of there. I don't care what my insurance company says. I ain't giving that guy my money. I expect a good bedside manner. I expect respect. I expect consideration. Of course I do. But is that all I want from a doctor? Because if that's all I'm going to get from him, why did I bother going? There are two other things I must have. Diagnosis and prescription. If something is wrong, I need to know what it is. And if something is wrong, I need to know what to do about it. If he's not giving me a diagnosis and a prescription, I don't call that good medicine. If the church is not giving people the truth about the human condition, I don't call that good ministry. And for that reason, I want to talk about this challenge we have. The challenge to be speaking love and truth. That is what the Great Commission is all about. Let's review briefly what Jesus said our job description is. So Jesus spoke to them, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, said, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. What does that tell us right off the bat? Number one, everything is not good between God and the world. God so loved the world. Oh, absolutely. God loves the world. It's not that. But there is a problem. Otherwise, what the heck did Jesus come for? Thereby, we need to communicate to the world that something is wrong and there is a solution for it. And we need to communicate to believers, make disciples. Now, what does that require if we've got that two-fold commission? Preach the gospel to the unsaved, disciple and give the full counsel of God to the saved? Communicate. We've got to be communicators. Christianity without communication is Christianity without commission. Our commission is to communicate. To whom? Well, the unsaved need to hear that they are in need of salvation. How will they hear without a preacher? you got to communicate. The culture needs to hear there is a right way and a wrong way. you got to communicate if you're going to show that. Believers need to hear how God requires us to live. Paul told the Ephesian elders, I have not shunned to give you the full counsel of God. you got to communicate. What have we got to communicate? The, the truth. What is the truth? Jesus said it plainly, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So that's where I want to go. If I could talk with you briefly about three things we are required to do with the word of God. To know it, to live it, to speak it. Let's start with knowing the word. Knowing the word. I like it again, another job description Paul gave to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's a job description. There's an assignment. Well, I'm not going to rightly divide or properly handle a word that I don't know. If I want to serve God, I have to know what he has said. And if I want to know what he has said, I am going to have to study the written revelation he has given us written so we don't have to sit around and guess as to whether or not I am hearing is truly the voice of God or the pizza I had last night. Rightly dividing the word of truth. There's a job description. Now, let's review some basic things the word of truth has said about the human condition. We are created in his image, male and female. Beautiful. What's he said about our status as males and females? Well, David spelled that out in Psalm 139.13. You knit me together in my mother's womb. What I am as male or female is what you designed. 
What did he say about the male-female union? Know you not that he who created them created the male and female? For this cause a man leaves his father, mother, cleaves to his wife, two become one flesh, what God has joined together, let no man set asunder. Oops, there goes Jesus' Facebook account. We are sorry, son of God, you have violated community standards, but there it is. And anything falling short of what he has spelled out, that is, by definition, sin. We don't shake our fingers in people's faces and say, you're a sinner because you're a bad person. All we're saying is, well, we were created with intention, and anything falling short of what I created or intended missed the mark, and thereby it is a sin. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There are churches today who are literally revising the Word of God. I know, I was on staff with one of them. And we were committed to taking the Bible and, and basically revising it to say what we wanted it to say about our sexuality. And that is an error, I dare say even a heresy, going through the modern church today. But there's a secondary issue that's a lot more subtle, and that is not to revise the Word of God, but to minimize the importance of critical doctrine. To minimize the importance of critical doctrine. To say, well, if an issue is controversial, like the definition of marriage, family, and normal sexuality, maybe we don't have to be so adamant about it. Let's not fight over it. Let's agree to disagree. You say tomato, I say tomato. Eh, we're all believers. We all love the Lord. Let's just try to get along. Is there a place for that on some issues? Of course, yes. I cannot imagine us really breaking fellowship over, say, disputes over the rapture of the church. Is it pre-trip, mid-trip, or post-trip? I don't think we're going to break fellowship over that. I'm really not going to break fellowship over the question of whether or not you can lose your salvation. You go with the Calvinist, or you go with the Arminianist, or you go somewhere in between. I mean, yes, we can agree to disagree on those. Is this an issue we can agree to disagree on? The definition of marriage and family per the Scripture. I would argue that it is an essential. Virtually every book in the New Testament both names and condemns sexual sin. Right off the bat, that tells us that is a primary doctrine. That is an essential doctrine. As a matter of fact, the first case we see in Scripture of church discipline had to do with sexual sin. A man in the Corinthian church was living in an illicit relationship with his stepmother. Paul seemed to be madder at the church than at the guy when he said, hey, what's with you? It's common knowledge that you're actually proud of the fact that you're so tolerant, you allow sexual sin to be openly practiced right in the middle of the congregation. And there is a reason for that. The marital union in both testaments is described as a type, a representation of God's relationship to his people. In the Old Testament, as a type of God's relationship to Israel. In the New Testament, as a type of Christ's relationship with his church. You don't mess with sacred representations, and that tells me that this issue of sexuality, what is normal, what is ordained by God, the controversies over lesbianism, over homosexuality, over transgenderism, this is a hill with a big old sign on it that says, die here. This is a critical, essential doctrine. That is the word we know. That is the word we know. The knowledge of the Word and a recognition of its importance is part of what is going to keep us healthy. One of the worst nightmares in my adult life was back in the early 80s when I was still a part of the gay community 
and so many friends I love, so many wonderful guys were coming down with something that nobody understood. Didn't even have a name at the time, but all of a sudden people are starting to get sick and losing weight and becoming skeletal and dying, and we were just perplexed and scared to death. I mean, we, there was no, really no describing the, the horror of the AIDS epidemic. There still is no describing the horror of AIDS. Terrible thing about it, it makes your body unable to ward off what can usually be warded off. There's all kinds of diseases floating around, but most of us have healthy immune systems. So those diseases don't impact us. When the immune system is broken down, it's not AIDS that kills people, it's the diseases they get as a result of the fact their immune system was broken down. Biblical discernment is the immune system of the body of Christ. When we are well grounded in the word, we know the truth. There are all kinds of errors and heresies floating around. If we have our immune system intact, they're not going to impact us. What does it say about the modern church that so often different false teachings can infect the church? It says our immune system, biblical discernment, is not where it needs to be. Biblical discernment is simply the natural result of knowing the document we all have access to and all of us can study. And when you have studied the document, you are able to discern truth from error. And you don't have to be any kind of theologian to do that, do you? I ain't no literary professor. Nothing like that. But I know Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, because I've read it more times than I can count. Absolutely outside of the Bible, that is my favorite reading. Wonderful novel, great story. I always get more out of it every time I read it. I love that story, have since I was a boy. I know it inside out. I am not an expert on Dickens, but I know what it says. I know, for example, that one of its darkest, most fascinating characters, Madame Defarge, lost her sister to rape and murder, had her family destroyed by the aristocrats and never lost her bitterness, so she enjoyed sitting in front of the guillotine watching the aristocrats get beheaded. I know that because I know the book. Now, if you come to me and said, oh, Tale of Two Cities, I love that story. Don't you like the part where Madame Defarge opens up a daycare center for aristocrats' children? I'd go, ah, thank you for playing. No, it does not say that. I know that book, not because I'm brilliant, but because I've read it. Thereby, if you tell me something is in A Tale of Two Cities that I know is not there, I will be able to ward off your error because I am well-grounded in my knowledge of the book. That's what it is to study, to show yourself approved unto God. All of us can read the Bible. Granted, parts of it are problematic and difficult, but most of it is highly accessible. There's no excuse for us to be biblically ignorant. That is actually one of the key issues, to my thinking, that we're facing today is the problem of a lack of biblical literacy. That's the word we need to know, but we can't stop there, can we? There is also the word we need to live. And if you are a parent, you know exactly what it is to say a word that becomes known but is not lived. Yeah, well, that said it all, didn't it? <laughs> Son, take out the trash. Okay, Dad. Heard the word. Day later, Son, why is the trash piled up? What did I say? Ah, oh, you said when it's convenient. 
if I'm not tired, when I'm done with my video game. No, that's not what I said. That's what you wanted me to say. That's the difference between knowing the word, living the word. Knowing the word, living the word. Now, this is a critical point. One of the best ways to drive people out of the church is to preach a message we ourselves don't live. One of the best ways to drive people out of the church is to preach a message that we do not live. That's exactly why Jesus said, why are you calling me Lord, Lord, if you're not going to do what I say? I mean, even more to the point, if we're up here saying our Lord condemns the concept of same-sex marriage and our Lord does not intend transgenderism to be verified and celebrated and our Lord never intended homosexuality, well, all of that is true. It's all biblical. But what is also just as biblically true, our Lord condemns pornography in any form. It's an unclean, vile habit. Our Lord condemns adultery internally or externally. Our Lord condemns gossip. Our Lord condemns pride. In fact, the author of Proverbs said that those two sins, gossip and pride, are abominations, using the same word for abomination that is used when the author of Leviticus said, do not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination, as is gossip, as is pride. Now, here's the thing. If we're going to emphasize one set of sins over another, we are then guilty of knowing the word but not living the word. That spells a double standard. I think we know that. I know the LGBTQ community knows that. I know that many of them who have been in our churches have seen the practice of a double standard, whereby we say you should not have sex before marriage, you should not engage in adulterous behavior, you should not look at pornography, and you never must lie with a man as with a woman. Well, they're all lumped together in the Bible, but the way they are so often delivered by the church you'd think one was a misdemeanor and the other is a felony, and that really is not a biblical perspective on sexual sin. More to the point, and this is a broader issue even than double standard. Well, again, let me backtrack a little. I love the bride of Christ. I love the body of Christ, and I know you do. We love the church. But let's face it square on. There is, as we speak, a great problem of moral corruption within our body. A great problem of something spreading within the body. The epidemic giving over to the uncleanness of pornography or different types of secret sexual engagements that are having a corrosive effect on the church's ability to function. And that is why I believe the modern church's lack of consecration at least in part, explains the modern church's lack of influence. We can't be healthy enough to be the influence we are meant to be if we ourselves are morally compromised. And that's because, to my thinking, the unconsecrated are the unqualified. The unconsecrated are the unqualified. Isn't it interesting, Joshua 5, um, uh, Israel's getting ready to take Jericho, and it's really going to be awesome. I mean, you know, they've had the deliverance from Egypt. They've had the wandering in the wilderness. They've had the purging. They've had a whole generation, and, and, and now they're going to finally get into the promised land. 
first battle is going to be Jericho. And, and they cross over Jordan like it's dry land. And that was awesome. Wonderful. And then um, um, they're told to build a monument to remember that great day the Lord brought them over. That's wonderful. This is all great. And Jericho is going to be at least fun. It's going to be a musical event. They're going to blow instruments and horns and see walls come down. And this is, you know, I would have loved to have seen all that. So everything is looking great. And then all of a sudden, right before they're going to start battle, the Lord says to Joshua, now take a sharp rock, circumcise every man in Israel, young and old. And I think of almost any message God gave a man to give to people, that is the one I would have hated to give to the guys. I, can, I cannot imagine when he lined up the troops, somebody not rather timidly going, um, question, is this really necessary? Because we, we've got other things to do, like a battle to fight. I don't know. But this is an important point. An entire generation had grown up uncircumcised. What was circumcision? Sign of covenant separation unto God. What was God saying? Don't even think of trying to take Jericho if you are still not separated to me. Where there's a lack of separation, there must be a lack of power. The unconsecrated are the unqualified. If you are concerned about the moral decay in the culture, and there's a lot to be concerned about. That's a ridiculous understatement. There's a lot we can do and should do. We should be engaged culturally. We should be engaged politically. We should be engaged in conversation. We should be engaged in so many different ways. But let's not leave this part out of the equation. One of the greatest blows you can strike against immorality in the culture is the blow of a truly consecrated life. If you know there is ongoing, unrepentant compromise in your own life. The greatest thing you can do with your concern about immorality is start with yourself. You see? Now, you and I also know that if we are going on a quest to reach some sort of moral perfection, good luck with that. But, of course, the trajectory should always be there. And I think you know the difference between imperfection and deliberate, ongoing moral compromise. That has to be brought out for so many reasons, not the least of which is, come on, we need you. <laughs> we need you. Paul said, if one member of the body suffers, the whole darn body is suffering. Well, if you're not a consecrated woman or a consecrated man, if you have allowed an ongoing disease of compromise to pollute you and to weaken you, you can't function the way we need you to function. I mean, one of the greatest, I think, deceptions we, we swallow about sexual sin is that it's a private matter. No, it's not. You're linked to the rest of us. There's nothing my hand does outside of the context of the fact that it's attached to my body. We need you. We need you. And for that reason, I believe, more than ever, as the church speaks prophetically about the problem of immorality in the culture, we must remember our own consecration. That's a critical part of it. So first, we got to know the word. Okay, sure. Then we've got to be living it. We've got to be conformed to it. And finally, we got to express it. we got to express it. That is to say, we have to speak it. Know it, live it, and be willing to speak it. Now, that's going to get fun, isn't it? <laughs> we don't get in trouble for what we believe. 
we get in trouble for what we say. Nobody cares what you believe as long as you do it privately and silently. Nobody will be offended. Nobody will give you a hard time. As a matter of fact, I'll take it even further. There are a lot of aspects of Christianity you can speak about openly, no problem. You want to go to work wearing an I love Jesus button? Who cares? Nobody's going to hassle you, I don't think. You want to sing Amazing Grace in the coffee room? Fine, go for it. Shoot, plenty of non-believers will probably sing along with you. That's no big deal. Start being honest about what you believe about the definition of marriage, family, and sexuality, and watch what happens. That's where we get in trouble, the dangerous doctrines, the dangerous doctrines. And that makes it very tempting to avoid speaking. Now let's be careful even as we approach this. God is not calling us to be jerks, insensitive, stupid jerks. Of course there is a place for speaking and a place for withholding, and there's a place for prioritizing. Good heavens, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. She's a woman in sexual sin. Is that what he's really into talking about? No. He doesn't affirm her sin, but nor does he rail about it because there was a more important issue, wasn't there, where he was basically saying, I want you to know me. I want you to live forever. I don't ever want you to be thirsty again. That's the priority issue, of course. So there is the place for all of that wisdom. But... That said, I believe our, our reticence to speak truth comes from the temptation not to offend and as much as possible to get along. I want to get along, but I believe one of the great lies, and I hope we can think about this long and hard over the coming years, one of the great lies of the time, one of the great deceptions of the time is that love equals affection, and that alone is the definition of love. Now, that's not a new lie. I remember when I was a kid, 1969, Woodstock. And it was billed everywhere as three days of peace and love. Uh-huh. Well, well, I'm not going to knock everything about that. I still love Jimi Hendrix's stuff, so shoot me if I'm a heretic, but I do. Uh, but what was it really? It was a lot of affection. Everybody got together, everybody hugged, a lot of them didn't stop at that. But yeah, there was a lot of affection, and I guess everybody was nice for a few days, and everybody was high for a few days, and everybody got along for a few days. Are we really going to say that is the kind of love that sustains anything? Of course not. Why? We have a definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which says, interestingly enough, practically nothing about affection. The closest you get to it is love is kind, but everything else in that list of qualifiers for love, it's about what you do and about what you are and about what your reliability and your truth-telling and, and, and your sacrifice that you make and your endurance. That's love. Now, I'll take the affection, too, because I don't know anybody who's a better cuddler than me. I am the champ. I don't think anybody can out-cuddle me. And whether, I mean, whether it's my wife or my kids or my English bulldog, I can hug with the best of them. I'm not saying let's dismiss affection. I'm only saying let's not get ourselves into thinking that that alone constitutes love. Love wants and thereby seeks what is in the best interest of its object. If I love you, I want what is in your best interest. What is in your best interest? John spelled it out in his epistle. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
Love seeks for its object to be walking in truth. Now, all of that said, we do understand that truth can be offensive. We do understand it can be hard to hear. I've thought about this a lot lately, the whole idea of the emotions versus the mind, because I think we've shifted as a culture away from the importance of the cognitive and more to the importance of the emotive, you see, to the point where we are making decisions with our emotions rather than with our mind. The mind is meant to guide. The emotions are meant to be expressed and, and, and to, to color, but not to guide. When we take guidance from our emotions, we make all of the wrong decisions. I think we all know that. Thereby, we go back to what is true. What do we know to be true? And that we must stick with. Why am I harping on that? You watch in the coming years. won't be long. There's going to be a great pressure on the local church to revise its teaching to meet not the needs, but the desires of people who come to it. Not the needs, but the desires. Now, even if we step away from the theological realm, we can see how unfair that is to do that to any organization, to say, I will come to your church, but I want you to say what I want you to say. Suppose I go to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> Shoot, suppose we all go to a Mexican restaurant. I love Mexican food. Okay. So, in I walk. I see the sign, Mexican restaurant. Host greets me, Hello. I'm ushered to a table. The server comes to me. Ah, oh, Mr. Dallas, nice to see you. We, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. Good that you're here. Okay, fine. Comes back and says, have you decided what would you like? Ravioli. Mr. Dallas, that's not on the menu. I don't care. You said you welcome me. We do. You said you liked me. We do. Then I want ravioli. Sir. In fairness, when you came here, you knew this was a Mexican restaurant. You saw the menu. Ravioli is not on the menu. We serve what is on the menu. If you wished something else, there were many other restaurants you could go to. But in this restaurant, this is what we serve. Now look, if you don't care for what's on our menu, that doesn't mean we don't want you here. If you just want to have a, a Coke and a glass of water, a cup of coffee, all right, that doesn't mean we don't welcome you. But you cannot ask us to serve you what we simply do not serve. And by the way, Mr. Dallas, we're not going to pretend that we don't have a good menu. I really hope that you will try some of what we serve. At least try the chips with some of the salsa. It's really good stuff. It's tasty. But even if you choose not to eat what we serve, we respect that, but you must respect the fact that we are a Mexican restaurant. We serve Mexican food. We are the church. We serve the word of God. The Bible is our menu. We welcome everybody. That's why I hope if anybody says, hey, is your church gay friendly? Good grief. I hope the answer is yes. We of all people should be the most hospitable, the most affectionate, the most respectful, the most sensitive, the most welcoming. Well, of course you're welcome. And no, nobody's going to impose anything on you. No, have a seat, enjoy. Come as often as you like, you know. But this is what we serve. Now, you may not want all of what we serve. Okay, fine. 
But what you may not do is ask us to serve something else. We serve the word of God. We cannot change our menu. Now, is that always going to be well-received? No. There will be tension. Now, this is one of the great errors of the time also. I believe that much of the church is being deceived into thinking that if what we say causes tension, there must be something wrong with what we said. Think about that. If what you said caused tension, there must be something wrong with what you said. Now, have we never been guilty of saying the wrong thing when it comes to LGBTQ issues? Oh, I know that's not true. I'll tell you plainly, right after I had repented in 1984, 40 years ago of homosexuality, I walked into a Bible-believing church. The pastor went to the podium, and the first thing he said was, I want you to know there's a gay rights bill that California is considering. I want you to oppose it because I know for a fact homosexuals are pedophiles. I know that because when I was a boy, a few homosexuals approached me, and I would get so mad I would beat them up, and the whole congregation broke out into applause. And then he said, and if they ever touch my grandchildren, I'll beat them up. The whole congregation broke out into even louder applause. And I thought, if these people knew where I've been, they honestly would think I have been out molesting children just because I was gay. Now, when people hear that, how anxious do you think they are to come to a congregation who has ideas like that about them? So, yes, there are plenty of times we have said the wrong thing. But does that mean every time what we say causes tension, it means we said the wrong thing? Oh, well, if we say that, then we'd have to say Jesus blew it, wouldn't we? Because what he said caused unprecedented tension. Let's bring it down to something even more individual. You remember when a rich young ruler approached him, asked him an honest question. Jesus gave him an honest answer. You are holding on to something that is keeping you out of the kingdom. And the young man turned around and walked away. And, and the, the author of the gospel is very specific when he says, and Jesus looking on him loved him. Loved him, knowing Jesus being omniscient and God incarnate. Of course, he knew how that conversation was going to play out. Knowing that by telling him the truth, that young man would walk away, Jesus still told him the truth. We don't know how it played out in the end, but that's the way it played out according to the gospel up to that point. Tension is not fun, neither is controversy, I know that. But I love the way the late Dr. Walter Martin, a great apologist, put it. Controversy for its own sake is a sin. But controversy for the sake of the truth is a divine mandate. Controversy for the sake of the truth is a divine mandate. That is to say, we're not called to go out and be deliberately controversial. I think that's just weird if you want to make trouble. But the fact is, and I think everybody can agree this is true across the board, if you take a clear position, somebody is going to disagree with you. If you don't want people to disagree with you, you must never take a clear position. And some of the people who disagree with you are not going to like you, and there is going to be tension. But here's where I think we miss a point. Tension is often the labor pain leading to rebirth. It often begins with tension. 
Good night. I can testify to that personally. When I was on staff with a gay church, I went into the gay community as a backslidden Christian. I had known the Word of God. I tried to push the Word of God down. I tried to preach a revised version of the Word of God. And some of my old friends who had known me in my earlier days when I walked in truth would come and confront me and say, Joe, what are you doing? You're embracing a gay identity. You're saying the Bible condones what you're doing. We know that you know better because you're a student of the Word of God. And I would just stick out my chest and let them have it. No, I know I had all my talking points down and I could zap them and I could basically win the conversation and they'd walk away and I'd go home and get blind, stinking drunk to kill the tension I was feeling because I knew at some level what they were telling me was true and I did not want to hear that. But that was tension, which eventually led to repentance. You see, eventually so. Controversy can be life-giving. I remember speaking at a seminar some years ago and it was invaded by an activist group. Now, although lesbian and gay and transgender activists, they're really, you know, sort of violently uproarious type, get a lot of press. I'm sure, I know for a fact, that is a minority within the LGBTQ population. Very few of them would behave in such a way. And just a side note, plenty of people who are a part of the more radical LGBTQ movement are not even gay or lesbian themselves. They're heterosexuals who support the movement. So that's no indication of what lesbian and gay people are like. But in this case, yeah, we had some pretty virulent people coming in there and and they disrupted, broke up the whole thing. The organizers had to call the police and the police were on the way and the, and the, and the women were running all through the sanctuary. And one of them came up to the podium was just getting in my face. They're screaming, you know, and coming up with all sorts of creative names for me and suggesting I do all sorts of things that I, I learned some things that day. I'd never heard some of those words or some of those ideas. I was, well, okay. And I said, okay, whoa, 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 time out. I know, you know, police are coming before they drag you away. Fine. You think I'm a jerk. I get it. You don't know half the story. Okay. I agree with you, but this is about him. I want to challenge you. Go home, grab a Bible, open it up to the book of John. All I'm asking you to do is read what Jesus said about himself, his claims about himself, his promises, and his requirements. It's all I'm asking you to do. And then pray to the God you don't believe in, that if this is true, he will show you. And that was it. And off they went. And well, that, you know, that wasn't brilliant, but it was the best I could do. Years later, show up to another conference. I'm walking in to speak. There's a registration table. A young woman gets up from the table and sees me and comes up and gives me a big hug. Says, do you remember me? And I, I didn't. I said, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm lousy with people. And she said, well, the last time I saw you, I told you to... Oh, yeah, how you doing? I, yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. She said, I got to tell you something. I was so mad at you. I wasn't going to let any guy challenge me, so I thought I'll show that idiot. I'm not afraid to take his challenge. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to grab the stupid Bible, and I'm going to read the stupid book by stupid John. And she said, I did read it. And, and the more I read, the more intrigued I got. And the more intrigued I got, the more I wanted to read, not just the Gospel of John, but I read some of the epistles. Then I read some of the Old Testament, and I finally decided I'm going to visit a church. And then I went back. And then I went back again, and I finally came forward, received Christ, and got baptized. I'm here volunteering, and I'm walking with the Lord. It all started with tension.
You see? In many of our cases, isn't that how it started with us? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I first heard the gospel, I didn't feel like, oh, lucky God, he's going to get this fine specimen of an individual. I think I'll be born again because the church needs me. I'm a good guy, and Christianity is going to make me an even better guy. Are you kidding? I heard everything about myself I didn't want to hear. You are apart from God. You are under judgment. You are dead in sin. Even at your best, you are rather smelly. Wow. <laughs> you know, the gospel is good news, but it's, not, it's really not a compliment, is it? Of course not. No. But it's good news. But it ain't going to stroke your ego. If it does, it ain't the gospel. But that's the point. That's what we have the job description to give. I love the way Paul put it again to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.24. You want to be a servant of the Lord? Okay, here's what you do. And here's what you don't do. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It's not what we're here for. We're not here to pick fights. We're not here to start them. We're not here to keep them going. Enough of that. But be gentle to all. That's, you know, sensitive, tender, gentle. Apt to teach. Ah, not just, okay, Lord, here I am, send me if I have to, but apt to is like, Lord, every day, please, an opportunity, please give me a chance to speak your word. Give me wisdom to know when it's time to say something, then give me boldness when I know it's time to speak. Give me both those, wisdom and boldness. Apt. Come on. I'm waiting. Patient. Well, if you're not, you're going to go flat out of your mind. We sow the word. We don't get the schedule, do we? I like schedules. If I'm going to get on a plane, I want to know when that's going to land. Not that that's accurate half the time, but I still want to know. When I sow the word, I want a schedule. I don't get one. I didn't get one with this wonderful woman. I didn't even know the plane ever was going to land with her, but doggone it. Look at that, you know? See what I mean? Patient. In meekness, instructing. Ah, really important in meekness, as in, God forbid we ever develop a holier-than-thou attitude when we're speaking to anybody, much less lesbian, gay, and transgender people. They said, oh, I, out of my good superior place, will tell you, you poor sinner, what you need to do to be wonderful like me. Well, that's not much of an advertisement. They ain't going to come if that's all we're offering them, you know? No, in meekness. Now, this is critical. Instructing those who oppose themselves. Let's look at that for a minute, please. What are we saying? Be good so you can be good and you can be likable and we can take you? No, what we're saying is, I know it doesn't feel this way, but what you're doing is not in your own best interest. When I repented of homosexuality, I must say I did it in blind faith and obedience. Like, okay, God, this is what you don't want for me. I understand it. I've been a prodigal. I've been a rebel. I repent. It's wrong, so I repent. I wasn't really sure why. Well, I didn't need to know. I just, I needed to turn from it. Only decades later did I realize, well, when I repented, I thought I was doing it just to obey God. It was the greatest favor I ever did for myself. What I was living out was in opposition to my own best interest. You see? The creator knows what the creation needs. Those who oppose themselves in meekness instructing them, if peradventure, God will grant them repentance according to the acknowledging of the truth. See, that's what we are the stewards of, the word of God. It is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. When we give people the word of God, we are giving them something alive, not just a dry concept 
something living. And when they take it, when they receive it, it's life-giving. There's our commission to know it, to live it, and to bring it. Because when we know the Word of God, it transforms us. When we share the Word of God, it transforms others. And there, I believe, is our challenge and our great commission. I want to ask if you would take just a moment, please, and stand with me. I'd like us to pray for everyone who's a part of the LGBTQ population. I want us to pray that God will reach them as he's reached us, that he'll prepare us, that we'll love them as he calls us to love them, and they'll, they'll come to know the truth. Father, we cry out to you. Please look on these people you love so much, these valuable, pricelessly valuable people. We pray that you speak to them and show yourself to them. Interrupt their lives by showing yourself to be the God who created them and the God who loves them and the Father who wants them to come home. Make them hungry for you above all else. Soften their hearts towards you wherever their hearts have been hardened, either by rebellion or by pain. Increase their ability to understand that you have made them for something more and impart to them the faith to believe that you can give them all that they will need to walk with you in righteousness. Cause them to want you above everything. And we do pray, Lord, please bring them to us. Let us love them and give them what we have to give and receive from them what they have to give to us. Bring them into your body, Lord. We are hungry for that. We pray you make your church a place that is welcoming, bold, and clear in all ways. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.